Hey, welcome to the Capital City Christian Podcast and to our series study through the book of 1 John, a verse-by-verse study through this great letter written by the Apostle John. So grab a Bible, grab a notepad, and let's dive in together. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome again to our Tuesday study. Hope you're doing well. Uh, We are continuing our study through the book of 1 John. So grab a Bible, grab a notepad, and grab your fancy glass as we are going to be in 1 John chapter 3. And today we're going to be going through verse 17 to 22. Today in my fancy glass is some iced tea with raspberry flavoring. Iced tea with raspberry flavoring. Hope you're having a great, great uh, week. Today we're going to spend 20 to 30 minutes together just kind of going through a couple of verses in 1 John as we have been going uh, through over the past couple of months. And uh, today we're going to look at some really, really great verses. Uh, But before we dive in, we got to get to our Tuesday Dad Joke of the Week. Tuesday Dad Joke of the Week. I have four young children, and so this one means a lot to me. Here we go. Here's Tuesday's Dad Joke of the Week. If a child refuses to sleep during nap time, are they guilty of resisting a rest? Yes, they are guilty. There's your Tuesday Dad Joke of the Week. All right, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. Now remember, last week we ended with verse 16, kind of in the middle of one of John's thoughts. Let me read verse 16 because it kind of leads us into the section that we're going to look at today. In verse 16, John writes this amazing, amazing line. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. We follow the example of Jesus. We lay down our lives for others because Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, we say that, right? We can say that. We would all intellectually agree that, yeah, Jesus laid down his life. We ought to lay down our lives for other people. But the question is, how do you do that? I mean, how in a tangible way can I lay down my life for somebody else. In these next few verses, John is about to get real practical on exactly how that kind of love can play out in a tangible way in your life and in my life. And that's where he is about to take us. So let's look at verse 17. Verse 17, John says this. He says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Okay. So again, Laying down one's life in verse 16 is now being put into the realm of potential practical help for one's brother. Now, this verse sounds a lot like what James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James chapter 2, verse 15, when James says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Okay, so so they're talking about very tangible, practical ways to help somebody who is in need. Now, why do you think John is using this kind of language? Why do you think James, the brother of Jesus, is using this kind of language to describe what love is? 
I think one of the reasons is because with their own eyes, they watched Jesus treat people this way. As they walked with Jesus, as they followed Jesus, they saw Jesus stop and touch the untouchable, stop and talk to people who were the outcast and meet their physical needs in order to meet their spiritual needs. And then they saw him go and give his life on a cross. And so John says, whoever has the world's goods, that's just a, whoever has possessions and sees his brother in need. This is where he goes as soon as he's talking about what it looks like to love other people. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you have any possessions, any possessions at all? Have you ever seen anybody in need? What ought you to do if you answered yes to both of those questions? What does love require of you? What does laying down your life require of you if you answered yes to both of those questions? John continues, he says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. Now, the term here, heart, is a really interesting word in the Hebrew language. The term here is literally bowels. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom for the seat of our emotions. It's, it's your emotions. If you close off your emotions, if you close off compassion and grace and mercy and, and, and empathy toward other people, what John is pointing out is that our actions reveal who our father is. Our actions reveal what's in our heart because he just said, hey, listen, if you have a brother or sister and they have a need, but you close your heart to them, so your actions reveal your heart. Your actions reveal who your father is. Are you a child of the devil or you are, are you a child of God? He says, and if you close your heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Answer, it doesn't. If you see a need, if you have an opportunity to meet a need and you close your heart to that person, the love of God does not abide in you. Think about the needs that you know about right now. Think about the people in your life, people who you work with, people in your family, people you come in contact with on a weekly basis. Think about people who are in need. Not even in your life, but even around the world. How do you respond? Do you respond with an attitude that says, hey, everybody's got to figure it out for themselves. I'm figuring it out for myself. I'm doing my best. I'm going to do me. You do you. Everybody's got to figure it out on their own. Or do you genuinely think, man, what can I do to help that person? What can I do to help that person? Now, I may not be able to help 100% with their need, but I can do something. What can I do for that person? This is laying down your life. And then John says this. I love this verse, verse 18. He says, little children. And you can hear the, just the compassionate, fatherly tone that John is saying. He is pleading with us. Older in age, he is saying, little children, there's some things I've learned. Little children, this is the best way to live. He said, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, actions do speak louder than words. Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house 
on the rock. You want to be wise, you hear the words of Jesus, and you obey. You want to be wise, you see the example of Jesus, and you follow. Now, in this verse, there's a little interesting thing happening. He says, let us not love with word or tongue, okay? Word or tongue, kind of synonymous. And then he says, but in deed and truth. And the term truth is is interesting and surprising because one would expect it to be synonymous of deed, like, like you know, our actions, right? The term um, seems to mean a genuine or true, like the use of message, that John has been using the word message, like you've heard the message, which emphasizes both doctrine and lifestyle. And so it is, it's truth. The deed and the motive must be both motivated by the self giving love of God and not just to be showy in order to build up our ego or to make us look better in front of other people. So when we are doing good deeds, when we are loving in deed and truth, the truth indicates here that our motivation is driven by the love of God, not just to be seen or not just to feed our own ego. So he says love with, not with word or tongue, but love in deed and truth. And then John says, we will know this, referring to the loving actions that are previously mentioned. We will know this, that we are of the truth. We will know this, that we are of the truth. A believer's loving lifestyle shows two things. Number one, it shows that they are on the side of truth. And number two, it shows that their conscience is clear. Because look where John goes, look where John goes next. He says, we will know this. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. We will assure our hearts before him in whatever our hearts condemn us. Now, this is a little bit interesting, but this is what we could say about this verse. All believers myself included, I'm sure you have too, we have experienced inner grief or remorse over not living up to the standard that we know is God's will in our life. I have not lived up to the God, God's standard. I've not lived up to his standard uh, of his will in my life. I've not 100% done that. There are times when I do, and there are times when I don't. And the times when I don't, I have this inner grief. And those pains of conscience can be I think from God's spirit inside of us, which causes us to, uh, uh, which leads us to repentance, or those pains of consciousness can be from Satan that would lead to a self-destruction in our own lives or a loss of our own witness. And, and, and it is both, there is, I believe there's both appropriate guilt and inappropriate guilt. There's appropriate guilt where we are convicted by the Spirit that, man, I need to be doing better. I need to repent. I need to follow God's will better. I haven't been obeying the way that I should. And there's inappropriate guilt where there is this a wretched, you know, wretched man am I. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I, 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 I'm not victorious. I'm not an overcomer. And those are lies from the, 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 from the devil that are put inside of us. Believers, I believe, know the difference by reading God's word right? Reading God's word. And John is trying to console believers who are living 
by the standard of love, but still struggling with sin. Okay, we all do that. We all are uh, trying to follow the example of Jesus. We're trying to live by the standard of love, and then we also struggle with sin. So when we see a need, sometimes selfishness arises within us, and it's like, I don't want to part with my stuff to go help that need, or I don't want to part with my time to go help that need. We've all been there. And what John is trying to do is he's trying to let us know, (laughs) and he's trying to console us, and he says here, he says, and whatever our hearts condemn us, and then he says these words, for God is greater than our heart, and knows all things. In other words, God knows our true motives. God knows what is in our hearts. Now, this can be good, and this also can be a warning for us. I mean, think about it. God knows what's in your heart. There's nothing hidden from him. I love what was said in the Old Testament, First Samuel, when God was speaking to Samuel and he was telling Samuel to uh, prepare to pick a king for the nation of Israel. In verse chapter 16 of First Samuel, verse 7, it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God knows our motives. It's an important reality we have to understand. John continues, he says this. He says, Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, okay, so Christians struggle with sin, right? We know we struggle with sin and self. We still face temptation. We act inappropriately in specific situations. Often our conscience condemns us, okay? That, that That is a reality. Our conscience will condemn us. But a knowledge of the gospel and having fellowship with Jesus allows us to yield to the Spirit's leading and and the Father's omniscience. God's power calms our hearts. Because look what John says. Yes, yes. If our hearts condemn us, if if you're feeling guilty, if you're struggling because sometimes you fall short of God's standard. He says, you can still have confidence before God. But if our hearts condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, this phrase here, confidence before God, that John uses in verse 21, is used elsewhere in Scripture, and it speaks of our free and open access into God's presence. John uses this. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews uses this, this. This phrase, our confidence before God, introduces two of the benefits that we have, assurances that we have in our salvation. Number one, that believers have perfect confidence before God and that we can obtain from God whatever we ask. Now, that confidence before God to enter into his presence as it relates to, okay, Listen, I know I ought to love the way that I should. I ought to lay down my life for others. I don't always do that. And when I don't always do that, my heart condemns me. I have this kind of guilty conscience, but God knows truly what's in our hearts. And in the midst of that guilty conscience, in that midst of remorse, I can still have confidence before God to go to God's presence. Because oftentimes where my natural self leans, where my natural frail self leans is when I mess up, when I fall short of God's standard, I get further away. I want to be further away from God. But the beautiful message 
of what God has done for us through Jesus is that we can approach God. It's kind of like a parent. When my children mess up, disobey, break something, when my children fall short of my standard, and they know they have and I know they have, as a parent, I want my children to draw close to me because I have compassion, I have mercy, I have grace. Yes, I wanna teach them well. Yes, sometimes there's gonna be some natural consequences, but deep in my heart is this love for my children. And I don't want them to draw away from me in those moments, I want them to draw close to me. I want them to have confidence that they can come to me in those moments. And it's the same way that God treats us. If our hearts condemn us, we have confidence before God. We have confidence that we can approach God and we have confidence that we can ask God. We can ask God and God will answer. Look where John goes next. He goes into the realm of prayer and we're going to stop here for a few moments because sometimes this verse can be a little bit confusing. He says, beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Okay, this reflects the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Okay, so this is this con con concept of talking and communicating with God through Jesus. Now, these scriptures promise things, um, and, and maybe you're thinking here today, wait a minute, this is so different from my own experience. This concept that... Uh, there will be unlimited answers to my, my prayer requests, okay? There, this, is, this is so different from my, uh, my experience in prayer because this verse promises, hey, whatever you ask, you're going to receive. Jesus said those words. Now, we have to do a quick comparison with some other relevant texts to help bring some theological balance to this conversation because we cannot take this verse by itself and be like, wait a minute, wait. whatever I ask, I'm going to receive from God. So that means, you know, I have a blank check and I can ask God for whatever. That we have to look at this within the context of John. We have to look at this within the context of other relevant scriptures all throughout the Bible. So let's do that really, really quickly. Let's look at some scriptures from, from the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, believers are encouraged to persevere in prayer, that God will provide good things, that his spirit will be with us. In the context of um, a couple of parables that Jesus told, believers are encouraged to uh, pray and be humble in their prayer and be repentant in their prayer. Like we approach God with, uh, with, with a repentant, sorrowful heart because we know that we have fallen short. In John's writings, in the Gospels, and in his letters, um, in the context of the man born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus prays, um, uh, Jesus's prayer, excuse me, is answered because he knew God and lived accordingly. So there's this concept of Jesus followed God's will, was obedient, and his prayers were answered. In um, John's upper room discourse, when we, we have the Jesus in the upper room, believers, are, our prayer is characterized in a few ways. It's, it's, it's coming from believers, asking in Jesus's name, desiring that the Father be glorified, and there is this element of keeping the commands of Jesus. In chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, believers' prayer is characterized by abiding in Jesus and his word abiding in us and producing fruit 
um, uh, that is evident and is tangible as we keep the commands of Jesus. If you go to uh, the book of James, Jesus's brother James writes about prayer and he writes about how believers are confronted with various trials and we're called to ask for wisdom and believers when we're faced with faced with health problems in the book of James we are to ask elders to pray and we're to pray pray in faith and we're to ask for sins to be forgiven and we are to confess our sins to one another and so you have all of these conversations and all of these examples of prayer throughout different portions of the new testament and and what is common in all of them is this reality the key to effective prayer is christ likeness the key to effective prayer is christ likeness this is what praying in jesus's name means the worst thing god could do for most christians is to answer selfish prayers I know that about me. If God were to answer all of my selfish prayers, my life would be far worse than it is today. In one sense, all prayers are answered. The most valuable aspect of prayer is that the believer has spent time with God, trusting God. The key to effective prayer is Christ-likeness. It's a common theme that you see when you read about believers' prayer all throughout the New Testament. Now, again, you think about that as it relates to parenting. As a parent, I want to give good gifts to my children. I don't always answer my children in the way that they want with every question and every request that they have, but I am more likely to do so when my children are abiding in me or abiding in my boundaries that I have set for them. The key to effective prayer is Christ-likeness. That's why in verse 22, John says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because here's the reason that you will receive from God when you ask, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So notice the two requirements for answered prayer are obedience. We keep his commandments. Jesus in the Great Commission said, teach people to obey everything that I've commanded. If your prayers are not being answered, if you don't feel like God is answering your prayers, or at least God isn't answering your prayers the way that you think that he should, maybe you need to look at your obedience. Are you obeying the commands of Jesus? And then notice the second requirement for answered prayer practicing the things that are pleasing to God. Are you practicing the things that are pleasing to God? In the gospel of John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus says this, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. See, 1 John is a how-to book on effective Christian living and ministry. And John begins this section that we just read with this concept of, hey, do you want to love and lay down your life for other people the way that God has laid down his life through Jesus for you? Well, here's a tangible way to do that. When you see a brother or sister in need, when you see somebody in need, you, you meet the need. You do everything that you can in your power to help that person. That is a tangible expression that you are a child of God and that Jesus abides in you and that the love of God abides 
in you. And yes, there are going to be times when you fall short of that and your conscience will, will, will encourage you to feel guilty. But in those moments, know that you have confidence in God. In those moments, know that God knows your heart. And if, you, you're, if your heart is pure, if you, if you have pure motives in your heart, God knows that. And understand that God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. And recognize that you have confidence. You can have confidence to approach God. You can have confidence to approach God. That God will extend forgiveness when you come to him with a repentant heart. But also that God will answer your prayers and that you will receive whatever you ask from him. But it's not just anything. It's when we are being obedient to the will and to the words of God because we keep his commands and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Are you keeping God's commands? Are you doing the things that are pleasing in his sight? I hope you are. And I hope those things are a visible, tangible reflection of what it means to abide in the love of God. I hope you're encouraged today through these words. I hope you continue to study and to look into this beautiful letter as we learn how to effectively live out Christian life and ministry and as we learn to be children of God the way that we should. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week and we will pick up next week as we continue in our study through 1 John. Have a great day, everybody. We hope this content serves as a catalyst towards spiritual growth in your own life. If you want to support this podcast, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, and share it. This helps create more exposure and allows us to include as many people as possible into this community. Thanks for joining us and for being a part of the Capital City Christian Podcast.